Good evening. Welcome to another episode of Facts. We are going through the New Testament book of First John today. And one of the things that I want to talk about is how a book like this has become a center of controversy when it comes to identifying two aspects. Sometimes when we talk about a book, for example, some of the Pauline epistles that some say, oh, that's not really Paul. But you, you can at least start with the fact that the beginning of it says, I, Paul. Or Second Peter, when we went over Second Peter, he claims to be Simon Peter. Here's a book where you have a nameless writer and a nameless congregation. You have a nameless location. All you have within the epistle are indicators to help you try to identify all three of those things. Audience, writer, location. You have a lot of content that can attach you to things, but that's about it. So today we're going to talk about the nameless epistle of 1 John. And when I say nameless, I mean all three of those avenues. But it is a book that can be traced historically. And once we get into the internal evidence, we're going to begin to see the connection to some of the other works of the New Testament we have and really condense it to a single location, an individual or individuals being the author or authors, and then within it, an audience that's going to be in a region as well as its content being connected to others. So let's talk about the canonical standing based on church history, what we have in the external evidence. We've talked about the Muratorian fragment multiple times on this program being a mid-second uh, century document. Uh, that goes through a canonical list. It's one of the earliest canonical lists that we have. And within it, it states this. If John so consistently mentions these particular points, also in his epistles, catch that, plural, saying about himself, what we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and our hands have handled the things which we have written to you, now, that's quoting 1 John 1. Now, he mentions epistles, but he's actually quoting 1 John 1. Then it states, For in this way he professes himself to not only be an eyewitness and a an hearer, but also a writer of all the marvelous deeds of the Lord in their order. So what we see in the Murantory fragment, 2nd century, already building canonical list, John mentions that, the, that he is an eyewitness that he is somebody who was with Jesus in his ministry. And he was so close to Jesus that he could touch him and that he saw him and that he observed all that he did. Now, again, we're assuming it's John and it says right here in the Miratory fragment, John consistently did things and said in his epistle. But the writer of the gospel and the writer of our first John are the same person in this section, if you go through the Muratorian pra uh, fragment where it goes into John's gospel, you actually have a connection here. The Muratorian fragment is saying the writer of one is the writer of the other. And that he actually wrote multiple epistles, which we'll get to second and third John next. But we'll talk about how they are actually controversial and which John. And, and uh, we'll share some of the theories about that next time. But for now, it's the Muratorian fragment stating that John behind the gospel, John, is the same John behind the epistle who said that which we have seen, 
being first John itself and specifically the first part in the opening. Irenaeus, a very important figure because he was trained in the Johannan discipleship, if you would. Uh, John trained Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John who then trained Irenaeus. And Irenaeus said this, John, the disciple of the Lord, verifies saying, but these are written. Then he quotes John 20, verse 31. And then he goes on to say, for seeing these blasphemous systems, which divide the Lord as far as lies in their power, saying that he was formed from two different substances. For this reason, also, he has thus testified to us in his epistle, being John's epistle. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist does come. Now have many antichrists appear, whereby we know it is the last time. And he's quoting 1 John chapter number 2. And so what Irenaeus is presenting to us, a part of the Johannan discipleship, very close. He was trained by the man who spent his time with John, stating that John combated the idea that he was now facing with Gnosticism, that Jesus was formed from two different substances. He's saying that's not possible. He refuted this in his epistle, which is also a good hint that, that John was writing his epistle to combat a certain theology, intentionally combat that theology, and calling that theology and its leaders antichrists. But again, we'll get back to that in a minute. But for now, what Irenaeus is saying is that John is the writer of John 20, verse 31. And he's the one in the epistle saying, little children, it's the last time, which is 1 John 2. The writers are the same. That's an agreement with the Muratorian fragment, which is predominantly from Rome. This Irenaeus coming from the Eastern church tradition. How about Papias? Now, Papias was trained by John as well. He was alive between 60 and 130 A.D., and according to Eusebius, he says of Papias's work, and the same writer uses testimonies from the first epistle of John and from that of Peter likewise. So Eusebius had the collection of Papias's work that we no longer have today and preserve what we do have of it for the most part. And Eusebius is saying that Papias used teachings from John's first epistle Catch it. First epistle. And then he also used some of Peter's as well. So Papias, who was actually a hearer and trained under John and saved under John's ministry, recognized John behind the first epistle that we call First John. These are important connections. You have men who are attached to John the apostle giving testimony to his words being in this epistle. Then you have Tertullian, the lawyer from North Africa, stating, we affirm that he is an antichrist, as both the old and the new prophecies explain, as does John the Apostle, who says that antichrists have already come forth into the world, forerunners of the spirit of antichrist, denying that Christ has come in the flesh and dissolving Jesus. And so Tertullian, when combating Marcion or looking at the heresies that are now permeating in the areas of the church, 
he brings out John who calls these antichrists out. Once again, going back to 1 John chapter 2. But he claims it's John the Apostle who again is combating a certain form of theology. Now, when we look at this, we have to, to begin to see a pattern. Same writers being attributed to it by those who knew John or trained her in the Johannine discipleship. And then you have these church historians and lawyers who've investigated these, these writings, and now they're having to combat these theologies that are coming into the church and taking over in heretical form. And they're pulling out these texts and actually combating them with these texts and attributing these teachings to John himself. And it's the same theology that it's combating. Origin in Alexandria. And if you notice, I'm choosing church fathers from different locations on purpose. Origin in Egypt, who later went to Caesarea. But none of the names we have mentioned express is his representation of us with the father as he pleads for human nature and makes atonement for it. The paraclete in the propitiation and the atonement. He has the name paraclete in the epistle of John. Notice he's going back to the comforter. This is the helper. Now he is mentioned in John 14, no doubt about that. But his activity origin is pinning back to the epistle of John, not, not anonymous but it's an epistle of John. And this is part of his commentary of the gospel of John, but he's alluding to the fact that the gospel of John pleading for this paraclete in John 14 was also given his function in the epistle. So again, origin is connecting the writer of the gospel to the writer of the epistle. Then before him came Clement of Alexandria, who said he wrote a commentary on the first letter of John and frequently quoted it in his other works, giving credit to the Apostle John. He, is also, he also calls it the greater epistle. So Clement wrote a commentary and quotes from it often and, and completely credits it to the Apostle John and even says it's the greater epistle, which is very, very interesting in light of the other two. So he recognized there was more than one under his name, but this was the greater one. And there's controversy as to why. And we'll talk about why that is a little bit later when we get to the next program. Jerome, the historian later in Rome, put together the Vulgate, said this in Illustrious Men. He, John, wrote also one epistle which begins as follows, that which was from the beginning. That which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He makes it clear that that is John. Now, other early attestation to go into that, it is found in the earliest forms of the Syriac Peshitta. And in all ancient versions, it is included in all the catalog lists of canon. And it came down through the apostolic succession, through those who continue to distribute and to copy these texts. In fact, the only person who ever appears not to recognize this epistle is guys like Marcion and other heretics. All the apostolic churches, and I just demonstrated from different regions of the world, 
all attribute it to John being the same writer of the Gospel of John and also combating the same kind of heresy. There's consistency here in the historical attestation. What about the internal evidence? Can we take what the historical narratives have stated and actually prove them internally? I think we can. I think there's reason to believe it. The author states that he has been an immediate disciple of Jesus. There's no doubt about that. He's claiming to be an eyewitness, not just an eyewitness, a close eyewitness. And he testifies of what he has heard and seen. Not just that he watched it, he is now going to testify to what he experienced. The writer is theologically and also syntactically the same as John's gospel especially with the idea and the function of the Lagos, the word. I mean, if you want to go back and hear some of that, go back to my podcast on the making of John's gospel. I get into a lot of this with the idea of the Lagos. The themes are the same. Light and darkness, their function. They're identical in both. The concept of love and fellowship, which John's gospel really brings out in Jesus's teachings. It's abundantly clear how frequent that shows up. There are themes that continue to show up the same. Righteousness, fruit of righteousness versus evil fruit. And how John brings out in his gospel and his epistle. There are multiple themes that are corresponding together in seemingly the same writer producing the same content, except the epistle form is more the application of what Jesus taught than actually a repeat of what Jesus taught. The writer is also not just writing as an eyewitness, but he's writing with authority and specifically apostolic authority to his readers. He's giving instructions. He's telling them what to do, not to do, how to view the atonement in chapter two, how to deal with, with their mindset of confession and sin in chapter one, how to identify themselves in Christ or being an antichrist. I mean, he drives home spiritual authority in this letter. But one of the things I want to pause and point out that's also connected to John's gospel is the writer is writing in the plural, that which we have seen. We have touched. Our joy may be full. Who's he talking about? Wasn't well, that interesting how that finds itself consistent to what we talked about in John's gospel in chapter one and then the very end? We beheld his glory. And we saw, and again, we don't have time in this program. If you, if you do have time, go back and listen to the making of John's gospel, that John's gospel was a group gospel. We don't know all them, all of them that were there, a part of the apostolic group outside of the name mentioned. We have one name historically mentioned, and that was Andrew. And I demonstrated why that is absolutely possible within John's gospel, just in chapter one alone. But here, the writer, again, is speaking on behalf of an apostolic group. Now, John may be the leader of this, just as he was of the gospel. But he's writing this as a group of authorities 
instructing the churches on behalf of the apostolic group, just as the gospel of John was written from the apostolic group there. So we see another link of consistency to the writer of the gospel of John to this writer. But again, it's not just that it's the consistency mark, but it's also not just one apostolic authority. It is a group of people writing. And I think that is distinguished from second and third John to a level, not completely because in second and third John, he addresses himself as the elder. And we're going to talk about next time, whether that's John, the apostle or a different John that traveled with Jesus. But he at least addresses himself not by name, but by description, the elder. He does not do that in first John. And he also addresses the recipients in second and third John. He does not hear in first John, which is why I named this, this episode the way that I did going back to the fact that it's the nameless epistle of first John, because it's nameless by the writer. It's nameless by the, the one who's being addressed in it and any kind of location, which is a little bit different from what we see in the others. But here we need to recognize that the group is writing this epistle and it appears to be the same group who presented the gospel. It's consistent with the theology. It's consistent with the syntactical layouts. It seems consistent with all of the application from Jesus's teaching to the full end application of that against the teachings of their day. This is abundantly clear that they are linked just as all the fathers said they were that we've gone over. It's clear from the author's repeated use of the terms of endearment too that he is somebody of great leadership and almost like a shepherd or 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 a person who is mentoring them, guiding them along. He uses the phrase technia quite a bit, little children, my little children in reference to his readers. He does in chapter two, verse one, chapter two, verse 12. 228, 37, 318, 44, 521, technia, my little children, which indicates something to us that he is well known to them and they are well known to him. This is a term of endearment. This is a term of relationship. This is a term of somebody who has spent a long period of time with somebody in a mentoring, instructive, guidance, wisdom kind of way. And they have been following that wisdom for a long time. There's a close relationship. Though we have a nameless writer and a nameless audience, it's clear the writer is known to the recipient and the recipients are known to the writer. That's undeniable. And this may well explain the omission of the name in the text. Remember, when they transmitted these, these letters and had them transported out, John could have had his name on the outside of the letter rather than the inside. We don't know. Or it could have been written from the apostles in Asia Minor or Ephesus or Smyrna or wherever they were on behalf of the apostolic group. And they, he did not include his name because he's writing on behalf of a group similar to how do we see the gospel of John and that it was sent by the group. It was sent from a headquarters, not from an individual. 
See, a lot of times when Paul is writing an epistle, he's writing it from jail by himself or with his team, but he's not writing from a specific location where he is housed. He's on the move or he's in prison. John may be writing this, the we, the our joy people, and they're and by the way, I think that our joy may be full goes back to a statement that Jesus prayed in his intercessory high priestly prayer for his apostles, that they would experience joy by sharing it with others. And that is exactly what John believed was happening when they were actually partaking of the fellowship with Jesus that they also experienced. Their joy was full. Jesus' intercessory prayer was fulfilled, which would make this group the apostles or an apostolic eyewitness group. And I think what John is doing is he's reaching out here and it's not him. So why would he write I, John, like Peter does? Now we talked about why they don't do that in the gospels, but particularly in the epistles, you can do that. This isn't a biography. This is a personal letter. Paul does it all the time. Even Peter does it in his. Why does John not do it the way Jude and James does it? Like, what is he doing here? What if... It's not just John. What if it's actually a group? What if it's a group of apostles? What if it's John and Andrew plus maybe a few more? And he's writing behalf on them. And it's writing it from the church, the leadership of a church to the other churches in the area about the matter that he is addressing. You see, that makes perfect sense. You wouldn't need a, a name on the inside. It could have been addressed on the outside of the manuscript. We just don't have the original words addressed. Or the carrier of that letter, as I was stating earlier, is so important and vital that when you're transporting these letters, that the writer and the recipient have a common connection through a known carrier who is known to the writer, known to the recipient, and he brings the letter from the writer to the recipient, and they all know it's authentic. We've talked about that on this program as well on multiple occasions. It is clear the writer knows the reader, the reader knows the writer very, very well, just in the terms of technia. He was so well known to the readers that no introduction was needed. Churches would have never received and continued to distribute a letter from somebody that was not an apostle. This letter would not have continued to make it into transmission if it had not come from a true authority. If this was not an apostolic group or an apostolic figure writing these instructions, it would have never made it to distribution. Much less, I should say, distribution compared to the church receiving it and applying it and living by it. Not a chance. And clearly the apostolic churches had no dispute about who was behind 1 John. Now let's talk about the audience. The unknown audience. It is abundantly clear that the audience is being surrounded by two things in this letter. Predominantly Serinthianism, and it seems to be the earliest stages of Docetism. Another issue that they're surrounded by, based on the very last verse of the book, verse 21 of chapter 5, idols. He told them to keep themselves from idols. He doesn't mention that anywhere else in the book, but he ends it that way. He certainly combats the idea of Serinthianism and seems to be in some places forms of the early stages of Docetism in 1 John chapter 4, 
verse three, first John two nineteen. I mean, you start seeing this combating of Gnosticism. Two elements. These two elements would place us somewhere in the Asia Minor region, perhaps Ephesus. Now, and against heresies, there's a story about John the Apostle running into Serinthus, who founded Serinthianism, the Gnostic form, which was in the mid to late first century. He ended up dying into the early part of the second century. And then Docetism really started taking off from that point. But listen to the story in Against Heresies, how Irenaeus tells a story he learned from Polycarp. He says, there are also those who heard from him that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving Serinthus within rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let us fly. Let us even the even the bathhouse fall down because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth is within. So apparently, uh, John the Apostle in his old age went to these public bathing, perhaps sauna kind of situations there in Ephesus. And in this bathing location, the heretic Serinthus was in there bathing. And so John ran into him and told, uh, you know, those with him, like, let's get out of here. Let's fly before this bathhouse falls down and crumbles because the enemy of truth is with inside of it. And I don't want to be with anywhere near him or it. And so from this story, we see that Serinthus was alive the same time John was and that John had already identified him an enemy of the truth and that they were both dwelling at that time in Ephesus. So it could be that part of this combating of Serinthianism took place in the location where Serinthian and John both were, which is Ephesus. Now that would give us reason to be more specific, but in a general sense, it could easily be within the area of Asia Minor. Idolatry was dominant in those areas, especially Ephesus. I mean, just read the book of Acts. You have all of these idols, these vain idols that he tells them to abstain from. But then you have this rise of Gnostic theology that comes into the equation. Now, we do have some counter views, more so from Latin traditions. Augustine of Hippo says that the letter was addressed ad parthos. And this inscription appears actually in some of the manuscripts uh, based into the Latin going into the Vulgate. Now, John did not have any relations with the Parthians that we know of. There's, there's no historical testimony of that. There's no way to confirm the statement of Augustine there, except for parts of writings in the Latin church and some of the manuscripts within the Latin tradition. Now, the suggestion of Wegscheider states this, and I think he's spot on. Ad parthos is an error for ad sparsos. An inscription would actually is found within, there are manuscripts that actually have that inscription, which is documented by Schultz. That may actually be correct. The suggestion that it's an error 
makes perfect sense. Uh, if we're to understand the word because of the idea of ad sparsos is that it's Catholic. It's applied to a circular. It's universal, if you would. It's very, very likely that that's what the term would be, having given the fact that these epistles, specifically for Sean, are known as Catholic or universal epistles in the sense that they were circular. Now, this was an authoritative letter addressed to several of John's congregations, and in all probability, Asia Minor, the same way the Apocalypse was. It was specifically addressing the seven there, but there were many more than seven in Asia Minor. But it could be that the inscription on some of the manuscripts is correct, and it's rightly by Wegscheider documented that, well, this is probably a mistake. There's actually probably a spelling error here, and it's ad sparsos, not ad parthos. Since we have other manuscripts that say that, so there was a misunderstanding in the transmission because we have no record of him being to the Parthians, of John going to the Parthians. We have lots of record of him being a part of that region of Ephesus and Asia Minor, which is where perhaps this letter was marked ad sparsos, being that it is a Catholic circulated universal letter to the churches. And, and may I add, if it is coming from an apostolic group, from a mother church, then that would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? I think that's a good argument. I think it's one that's worthy to be considered. So where would you date something like this? Because that's kind of, so the audience, the location, they're unnamed, but it seems to be Asia Minor and maybe even condense it down to Ephesus. Or it was started from Ephesus and distributed to all the other churches that were now being led astray by the Gnostic theology that came out of Serenthianism, which also originated from Ephesus. So it's people like that, surrounded by idols, surrounded by Gnosticism, probably Asia Minor. John being the writer on behalf of an apostolic group. But how do you date a book like this? Because that's hard enough to pull that information. Clearly, the audience, again, is surrounded by these matters. So that, that, that form of Gnosticism kind of helps us see where we need to put this, where we need to, to date a book like this. Because Serinthianism really didn't take off till after the second half of the first century. And again, there's forms of Docetism, specifically in chapter four, that start appearing in the book. And Docetism really didn't take off till the early second century, but probably started its fingerprints in the end of the first century. So you have this transition of semi-Docetism coming in and a lot of Serinthianism coming in. That to me would place us post 60, 70, 80. I do not think again, despite our semi-preterist friends, that any of the Johannan writings are actually before 70 AD. Not one. Not one. Historically, there's no reason to believe that. Now, the patriarchal tone that's in this epistle and the frequent use of the phrase of my little children, 
would reasonably cause us to consider that this was written at an advanced age of the writer and the church. Perhaps not long after the gospel, John itself, which I would date between 80 and 90, which is where I would place this epistle as well. I would lean that it was later and closer to 90 AD when docetism was just starting to crank up and Serinthian was starting to move out. Now, Serinthian died uh, from what we can investigate and believe somewhere around 100. And if that's true, and John was already having problems with them while they were both living in Ephesus, it appears John did not leave Jerusalem until after the destruction, that he was in Jerusalem for a while. And there's reason to believe that, particularly when we had some of the evidence we talked about John being possibly one of those a part of the gospel, Matthew being moved over to Greek uh, based on Athanasius. And again, go back to Matthew and you'll hear me talk about some of that. seems like John didn't leave Jerusalem initially until after the destruction of the temple. And then he went to Ephesus. He went to the East later in his life, not earlier. So again, that's where the gospel would have been written, probably around 80 to 90, closer to the 90 end. And I think they were closely written side by side. I don't think there was a lot of time between the gospel and the epistle, just based on the prologue of the gospel of John mixed in with first John is just too close. But I think it was written closer to 90. And that's based on the type of theology he's combating, the titles of little children, the patriarchal tone and authority that's being utilized here seems to come from a more developed more advanced perspective of church and the writer and how far reached Gnosticism has gone into that area, which would put us again, I believe toward the end of the first century. So in conclusion, what would I say? I would say that the epistle first John, the nameless epistle of first John was written by John, the apostle himself, the same writer of the gospel of John but that he did not once again do this on his own. The we in the hour is the same apostolic group that I defended behind the gospel of John earlier. So I think this is John being the head of it. He is one of the leader of the apostles. Uh, when Paul was still dealing with issues in the Gentile world, John was not dealing with the Gentiles. He was still dealing with the Jews. Because Paul went on to even say that the pillars of that church were James the Just, uh, or who we know as James the Just, Peter, and then John. Now, at that point, John was predominantly focused on the Jewish people. But it appears that, that John actually would move out to Ephesus and begin to deal with these problems and, and start churches in Asia Minor that maybe even Paul was joined to and perhaps picked up where Paul left off after his martyrdom and continued the ministry there. But he would have been an authority. Peter's dead by this point. Paul is dead by this point. James the Just is dead by this point. James, his brother, was killed very, very early on. John is one of the last authorities of the apostolic group. It would make sense that he would talk to the churches in a way of little children, technion. It makes perfect sense. So creating in this culture, this first epistle of John, 
you find the apostolic group writing to what appears to be churches that are spread across the Asia Minor region who are being diluted and polluted with Gnostic theology, both in its mature state of Serinthianism and its immature state of Docetism. And John is being a fatherly figure to these people and instructing them on how to view Jesus Christ in the body. He is not just an image. He is not just a phantom. He is actually a physical flesh that he and his group had seen and heard and touched the Lagos. And with that kind of conviction, he then appeals to them to change the way they view their sin because they were being influenced to view sin in chapter one the same way Serinthianism was. Because, oh, well, I mean, the body's evil anyway. No, you confess your sin. If you sin in the body, you confess it. And then he calls them to the atonement that required physical blood of Jesus to, to wash the sin that has been committed completely clean from the wrath of God. He is the propitiation, the place of mercy. So the body of Jesus spilled blood that, that atoned. And then he warns them of being a part of the system of the world and its leader, the wicked one. And that he gave examples, illustrations like Cain. He was of the wicked one and he did evil. So whoever practices evil, whoever is a murderer is of his father. They're like, they're like the descendancy of Satan's seed, the seed that passed on that looks like a Cain killing his brother. You're murdering people. Not necessarily a physical murder, but just murder through the means of hatred as well. And murderers don't have eternal life. And that righteous people that practice righteousness demonstrate their righteousness. Evil people who continue to practice evil prove that they are evil people. He goes through the whole functionality, dismissing this view, this downplayed view of Gnostic theology, tears it down. And it shows us that the writer is truly a person who knew Jesus and is insulted, insulted that they're tearing down his character, his mission, and what he accomplished on the cross. And then he comes to the very end after knocking Gnosticism in the face for five chapters. And then he just ends with one verse. My little children, stay away from idols. The end. <laughs> And I think it's a wonderful thing that shows that the main issue at hand that he was concerned about was Gnostic theology, but also knowing that they're surrounded by idols, which again, I think pinpoints an audience to the Asia Minor region. I just can't help but to think about what Irenaeus shared with the story of Polycarp and John at the bathing pools there in Ephesus, that maybe John actually wrote this epistle after running into him. I mean, he was mad. Like, I'm not going in that bathing house. I, it might collapse. The enemy, the truth is in there. You almost wonder if he went home and penned first John. <laughs> Just maybe. 
Perhaps it was written from Ephesus, the headquarters of the church there where John was, maybe Andrew or some of the other apostles from there distributed out. So yes, I do believe it is canonical. It qualifies as apostolic going back to the apostles, specifically John. Uh, and it was received by the churches. It fits all the qualifications of canonical criteria. Um, it fits in, in the character of God. It fits in the reception of the churches. It was obviously early distributed all the way up to Rome to where the Miratorian fragment already had it in the canonical list, North Africa with Tertullian, Caesarea, and Egypt, all those places with Clement and, and Origen. Um, it, it was distributed. It was in the East, obviously, with Irenaeus, Papias. So we have every reason to believe it was John. We have every reason to believe it was apostolic. We have every reason to believe it was canonical and it is the word of God. So again, thank you for tuning in to this episode. Stay tuned. We're going to be coming up with second and third John. We'll do those two together and we'll talk about some of the discrepancies there and see if they're a part of this because they are more controversial than first John, but we will dig into those next. Make sure you check out our other episodes here on facts and go through them and listen to them. Uh, check out some of the other books of the Bible we've done as we continue to go through the entire new and Old Testament, defending the canonicity. And then after we leave our canon, we're going to get into some of these extra biblical texts, both the heretical and those that are just historical. And we're going to talk about those as well. We're going to enjoy it on the way. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you.